Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Howdy and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute. A few days have now passed since the historic budget of 2020, a later than usual October affair in which $98 billion in new spending was ploughed into the economy. And that largesse may not even be the end of it. Next year is an election year in all likelihood. The budget's been generally well received, but hey, if you can't get a tick from voters for throwing money at them, you must be really incompetent. Labor's attempts to brand this the Morrison recession fall somewhere between embarrassing and pitiable. As the government says, everybody knows where this recession came from. It's the mother of all exogenous shocks. Still, Labor may not be as stupid as it looks on this question. I suspect it's laying the groundwork for capitalising politically if all this spending fails to avoid a serious and longer-term deterioration, including a slump into double-digit unemployment. Nobody wants that, of course, but it can't be ruled out. Ending up with record debt and deficit and no growth would be a terrible condition for a government seeking a fourth term. Besides, for all this generosity and the claimed purpose, the budget is unimaginative and untransformative, in that it seeks merely to take the economy back to where it was, with the low participation and underpayment of female labour, much of it casual or precarious, and a slow drift towards failure on emissions reduction. We hear a lot about the social licence in business these days, which roughly translated means the responsibilities that come with market participation and success. Crises present governments with a political licence which goes beyond mandate and which places a responsibility on a government using vast sums of taxpayer money to do perhaps more than simply shovel it out the door. Let's consider some of these questions with our panel. With me always is the wonderful Dr. Maria Tafaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi, Maria. Hello, everyone. Also, it's a welcome back to two great favourites of the sausage. Professor Helen Sullivan is the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU from whence this podcast comes. Welcome, Helen. Thanks. Good to be back. 
And Professor Bob Brunick is the Director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute, also at the Crawford School. Welcome back, Bob. Hi, Maria. Hi, Helen. Thanks, Mark. To you first, Bob, there's some big spends and some big assumptions in this budget. You know, obviously, they're talking about 4.25% growth next year. There's the uh, the, the assumption that there'll be a, a vaccine. There's the assumption that all this spending is going to drive down unemployment. Can you give us your sort of general reaction to the budget as you read it? Yeah, look, I think my general reaction was was positive. Um, I think it was balanced. Uh, I think we saw willingness to... Uh, set aside ideology to to some degree in the sense that uh, you know a government that uh, a year ago would have been would have been saying there's no way we're going to spend more money suddenly realized that there was a need to spend money. Um, there is a sense in which you do want to get money out the door in these kind of situations, and in some ways um, maybe it's less important how you do it. Um, so I think all of those things were recognized. I think we also saw um, relatively you know we saw a few labor policies. Um, Things like immediate expensing and, and and job subsidies that were part of the budget. And when you say immediate expensing, you're talking about the asset write-off uh, the, for businesses. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. allowing uh, allowing them to to immediately write off uh, expenses, um, which kind of moves us closer to a, a cash flow uh, expenditure tax on businesses, um, uh, and and also. Uh, I guess a willing, you know, what we didn't see was we didn't see highly contentious things like a corporate tax cut thrown in there. So I do think it was a budget that, in some sense, was not trying to sort of rile everybody up. Um, so, so I guess that's that's the good. Um, the bad is I think some of the programs are are poorly designed, and, and this is coming out now. I have serious concerns about the job subsidies, for example, and I think that um, putting the go- putting the country into large debt in the way that we're doing is going to require some kind of structural reform going forward. And what I didn't see here is I didn't see any kind of – even though it might not be the right time for structural reform given the things that are happening in the economy, you don't want to sort of be changing the settings really quickly during times of uncertainty. But it would be good for government to sort of signal that they had some intention around reform and we don't see much of that signal here. That idea, uh, just to take you up on that point about you don't want to change things too dramatically in times of uncertainty. Does that really apply to a situation like this? Because we're in uncertainty that this, we're in, as I said, this exogenous shock, you know, this this health crisis that's had this economic implication, largely imposed by government as a, as a way of dealing with the health crisis. As I was saying in the intro, I mean, it seems to me like a moment when we could be actually looking at some quite dramatic change. We are seeing quite dramatic change in social behavior, in economic behavior. We're going to see differences in the way we work. We know we're at a, uh, a critical point in this process of, uh, and it's becoming more and more critical, this process of trying to transform the economy to be cleaner and greener, more sustainable. Why isn't now the time to actually use the balance sheet to make some of those changes? I think the – so what I'm thinking about specifically is sort of tax reform, a sort of structural change to the tax system, which would involve uh, switching the mix of taxes. So moving away from such a heavy reliance on direct taxation to more indirect taxation, um, potentially getting rid of stamp duty, replacing it with land tax, maybe getting rid of payroll tax, um, doing something to reform a uh, company tax – all of those, those first two are state taxes, of oh, course. Yes, they are. But I think – which is why I think it has to be – I think it's hard for the government to do that in a federal budget. Mm. I think you have to set up a process that's going to do that. We've got no inkling that they're interested in that kind of a process. And I think doing that means you're changing relative prices in the economy. Yeah. And I guess it's those relative prices maybe during times of uncertainty that you don't want to upset people too much. But I, you know, I absolutely agree with your point that 
now is a good time for us to be tackling some of the big issues that we want to tackle, and I, I think climate change is one of those. Maria, um, Bob's point about the uh, the ideology in the budget, I think, is a very good one. Um, that is the 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 fact that it's not a, a heavily ideological document. I mean, there are some ideological underpinnings, of course, and the fact that the, there's a strong use of the public purse, but to drive the change in the economy, the recovery through the private sector rather than through kind of huge new public programs or at least huge permanent public programs. But his point is also a good one that this is pragmatic Morrison. You know, you compare it to the Abbott hockey disaster of 2014 or the sort of highly politically febrile and contested management of of, um, of the coalition while Malcolm Turnbull was there because of the divisions internally and everything else. This is kind of classic Morrison in a way. They haven't brought forward that third tranche of tax cuts, the ones that really benefit the top end. They haven't, you know, there's no mention of company tax cuts, for example, you know, which was, a, you know, a, a huge battle. So in a way, it's quite a low friction down the middle type of budget. Well, I think that reflects some of the, the sort of, uh, I guess, criticisms of this uh, budget, which, which Bob um, just sort of highlighted, which was that most people seem to think that the Morrison government has a very good job, has done a very good job of managing the initial crisis, um, you know, with uh, a sort of right, centre right flavoured form of pragmatism. But um, we're not necessarily gearing up well for the for the future. But you know what, I, I actually would like to sort of push back on this idea that around the ideology or whether or not the budget is ideological or not. Um, and it's not that I'm saying that it is ideological or hugely ideological, but I guess I would just like to point out that small government is just but one tenet of the panoply of uh, ideas and preferences that you find on uh, the centre-right of politics because, of course, you've got conservatives and you've got liberals and you've got libertarians and you've got classical large L liberals. And so they all have a different view about the role and function of government. And so mm. actually when we look at the spending and what they choose to spend on because it's this, but you know, the Liberal Party, the coalition has always enjoyed spending large amounts of taxpayers' money just on things that they approve of, and we see that in this budget. And and this is not this is not by way of like criticism, but it's it is actually just a reality, like the fact that they want a private sector led recovery, the fact that they are determined to leave it to the states to invest in social capital, the fact that there is nothing in the budget around obvious needs in aged um, care. Uh, that that is a marker of priorities, and it is a a marker of values. And the treasurer himself said it was a marker of um, values. And so, whilst yes, this budget is um, pragmatic in the sense that it doesn't upset the apple cart, probably because it's looking to an election, and and quite possibly because the government may simply just be exhausted just managing the crisis and given the way the government campaigned to become our government this time around, you know, it's not like they had a strong vision for the future. They, they probably still don't really know what they want to do anyway. Well, it's pretty clear that, you know, whether you, whether you support them or not, it's pretty clear they were largely out of puff by the time they got to uh, the election in 2019. And, of course, very few of them, uh, Morrison himself, actually expected to win it. So Many holidays pretty- were cancelled. Yeah, precisely, and and I think Matthias Cormann, who's just just quit now uh, as as our finance minister, is about to, and he certainly had his you know last day in parliament and and all that. But the word was that he was expecting to leave much earlier. He was going to leave straight after the election because you know they were expecting to be on the 
on the uh, wrong side of the, the chamber, as it were. Um, Helen Sullivan, as Maria was talking about this sort of ideology, ideology underpinning it and everything else, it is true that Morrison didn't – I mean, Morrison and Frydenberg obviously looked at this and thought, we can put this out. There's not going to be anyone – there's not going to be any great – sort of group who's going to get really angry about this. That was their judgment. Of course, they didn't really think about women. No. Well, they never <laughs> do, do they? Bless them. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's quite remarkable. I, can't, I think it was Annabelle Crabb in the, at the weekend who was um, – or late last week who was um, referencing a, a discussion somewhere between, you know, the inner sanctum, who are, of course, all, all men um, or white men, um, and uh, apparently one of them, you know, passing a comment that, you know, um, online shopping was all very well for big things, but you wouldn't do grocery shopping that way. And, you know, you know, for anybody who, you know, leads a normal life, has kids, is part of a family, you know, these are things that are, are now essential to um, keeping things afloat. And so, you know, it does seem to me that um, – Yes, uh, there's, uh, you know, there was a, a big miss in this, uh, in this budget. Now, you know, going back to Maria's point, whether that was uh, a deliberate choice or just, you know, uh, the, the fact that this is a bunch of people who don't recognize that, um, you know, there are 51, 52% of the population that, um, might experience life a wee bit differently from, um, uh, you know, the, the white male, uh, privileged group. Um, I don't know. Um, but it does seem to me to, to sit, um, alongside this, um, ideological positioning of what it is that we think the government should do if we're a coalition. Um, and we think the government should do things that are about, uh, appealing to our traditional base, you know. So that's, yeah, your high-vis jacket. Um, I mean, never have we seen so many high-vis jackets as we have, um, on politicians. Um, probably, um, more on them than there are on, on people actually working. But it, it is this, uh, you know, obsession with, going, appealing back to an idea of Australia that, you know, maybe existed, but but certainly isn't the case now. And and for me, you know, I think this budget was a huge missed opportunity, but not at all surprising given the government that, that's in power. You know, the government that is in power is doing what it thinks it can do in order to get re-elected. Um, and it is not going to you know, em- embrace uh, structural reform of tax. It's not going to focus on climate change. And and I guess the thing that it, it probably just didn't anticipate was that so many people, so many credible women would say, <laughs> actually, you know, it's not enough for me to be a lady driver driving on the roads. Actually, there are other things that matter. And one of the areas I think th- that was missed particularly was the the, the mismatch between where the government thinks we're going to be going in terms of future jobs, um, which we in universities know all about as a result of the um, the legislation that passed the Senate last week, and what they're now funding. So they're not funding in areas where we know there is going to be growth, aged care, for example. They're funding in, you know, relatively... Uh, small areas of our economy now, manufacturing and, and infrastructure. Now, of course, both of those things are important, but that's not a far-reaching, far-looking budget at all. It's not even really a 
very adroit understanding of the economy that they've been so materially in, in crea- creating. I mean, this is the party that was in government when they waved goodbye to the automotive industry, for example, and the argument, this whole neoliberal argument has always been that, you know, th- there's a rationality to these decisions that we've, and, and so they've presided quite happily over this idea of the growing service economy in Australia and we've tended to import uh, manufactured items rather than, than than do it ourselves. That's been the trend over the last few decades. Um, and yet they still have this kind of conception and you can see it, you can kind of smell it in a lot of the policies that a real job makes something physical, you know, that creates something. It digs, it, it, it might create a hole, but it, you, you know, you either, you either dig or you, or you, you know, you concrete or you sort of, you know, you work in a foundry. Photos. Of these things. Well, that's true. But this, but this, how much purchase does that stuff have? Oh, you know, well, looking at politicians in those appalling hairnet things doesn't exactly <laughs> endear me to them. But what I think what is, is, is interesting, and it'd be good to get Bob's view on this. I think the thing, one of the things that has changed is one of some of the language we hear now around this is the language of, of the sovereignty of our you know, control mm. over particular resources. Whereas, you know, a decade ago or even just before the last election, you know, we were very relaxed about global supply chains, about things being made anywhere and everywhere and, mm. and, and being brought into Australia. You know, the pandemic has has changed that. And, and you know, part of the, the political license that you were referring to earlier, I think, is now for the coalition, this idea that, you know, we claim sovereignty over the need to to build things ourselves again, whether it's, you know, PPE equipment or um, whatever else we might be building, but I, I do think there is there's something here that is. It, I mean, it's clearly not an economic argument, but it's certainly a political argument. I, I agree. It's more political than economic. I mean, I, you know, I'm one of the 99 percent of economists who think free trade is is a good idea. Uh, in, in my class, just uh, at the beginning of the semester, we were looking at indices of OECD countries. Um, of how much manufacturing was actually done in country and Australia was the lowest and, and actually had slid quite far down in the last 30 years. And at the same time, over those 30 years, Australia had the most economic growth and the greatest increases in well-being uh, in its population, which suggests that there's really very little link between manufacturing and economic growth. And I actually think, you know, people have said, oh, the, the pandemic has shown us that, you know, we're vulnerable to not having enough face masks because we import them. I think what the pandemic showed us is that when when that happens, we just make stuff really quickly. It's not hard to make things, right? You can you can make a car. There are videos on YouTube that will show you how to make a car. And I mean, the argument has always been, oh, if we stop doing automotive manufacturing, we'll forget how to make cars. It's a ridiculous argument. If we need to make cars, we'll make cars. And the future of manufacturing, as we see in the US with the onshoring that's happening of manufacturing, is not a job creation, mm. right? It's, it's about automation and it's about artificial mm. intelligence. Mm. Now, it may be that that's a, a road that Australia wants to go down. I, I actually don't think that's really our comparative advantage. I think there are a bunch of other things we do better. Um, but but I find it very troubling that this government wants to pick winners in industry. I, I and and I, you know they point to countries that have done that successfully, but the the vast majority of experiences are that you know countries do that quite unsuccessfully. We don't talk about Indonesia's shipbuilding industry. We don't talk about Zaire's car industry, and yet those countries picked those as winners. Mm. No, we certainly don't. I've, I don't think I've ever spoken about Zaire's <laughs> automotive industry. I think many of the choices the government have made are, you know, like the standard kind of ones, like, you know, like you get you get the recession textbook down from the shelf, you dust it off, page one, construction, right? And so that makes a lot of sense. What I think has been really interesting about the government's reaction to this criticism that their budget 
is tone deaf on women um, has been this ardent belief, like I think they genuinely believe that um, that they believe that the budget is is gender neutral. And the reason why I believe this is because it's actually the same sets of arguments they make about why they don't need to change anything about how they pre-select women into their party, Mm. right? Because um, it's this, you know, pre-selection is just a difficult process. The economy, you know, treats everyone the same. And, um, and so like their, their reaction to this, uh, isn't sort of surprising, particularly given like who is, who are the key decision makers and what kinds of lives they lead. I mean, you know, most politicians, uh, these days, uh, you know, are increasingly, particularly once they become ministers, and we know this from empirical um, evidence in this country and around the world, that they are more likely to have experience in politics. They are more likely to have experience in basically politics facilitating careers, so being an advisor or being in a union or working for interest groups, which is basically the unions for for the right. Um, and they didn't um, work a commuting job necessarily in the same way that the average Australian does. They probably never earned the median um, wage. Um, you know, the, the family arrangements are such that they probably don't know about ordering groceries online. Um, and so are we sort of surprised then that they make these sort of, uh, decisions that they, that they do? And I guess for me, I wonder, like, when it comes to the, the time to pivot, like, how will they, will they do that? Will they be able to? Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, take that point up because uh, a very interesting idea, this what, what constitutes a real job. Back in a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Before the break, Maria, you were talking about, um, you know, what constitutes Real work or a real job in the, in the minds of policymakers. I've seen some research by the Australia Institute, not to be confu- confused with the Australian Studies Institute, um, but by Richard Dennis, I think, who, who'd looked at some of this stuff. Um, and he was saying that for every million dollars that is spent in, say, early childhood education, there are, I think, about six jobs created, whereas in construction, particularly in road construction, it's about one and a half jobs for every million dollars invested. Yet the government still seems to think in these terms that, you know, projects are the answer. Do you think that would be the case? This is a, an imponderable in a sense, but do you think that sort of thinking would, would you, know, you know, find its way into final policy if the Treasurer was a woman? 
Oh, that's a really fascinating question. Um, I guess it really depends on, um, you know, the, the political persuasion of the, your, whatever woman you have in, in mind. But I think what's kind of interesting is that, um, you know, I think the Australian con- economy, and I think, Bob, you can please correct me, it's about 80% services, right, um, or thereabouts. And, um, and what is definitely true is that the first wave of the pandemic absolutely hit women really hard and then um, they also recovered um, faster than men. Um, and what has sort of since happened, especially now that we have sort of effectively two economies, is that uh, in Victoria, the, the the recession has or this, this, uh, the economic impact is hitting men and women equally because everything was sort of shut down and every other part of the um, economy is sort of recovering at roughly the same rate. And women, of course, were recovering um, faster. But what is, I guess, kind of puzzling to me is that that even though the services sector is huge and it's had huge impacts and some of those are not going away because of, you know, problems with tourism or, you know, the education sector or, or they simply just have great need like the aged care sector or they um, could be quite um, the unlocking of participation, for example, in the childcare sector, why the government has not chosen to pull any one of those um, levers, right? Mm. Um, and I think that is a reflection of choices of worldview and I guess, you know, what is kind of considered to be a real job, you know, and I, I just I, keep... Is it unconscious bias? Do you think that's what it is, Bob? So I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not good at speculating what other people have in the back of their minds, but I, I oh, do I think this budget had... <laughs> I mean, I think there are well-documented problems with our childcare subsidy program that have... Um, kind of for reasons that I don't understand, just no, that have been failed to be addressed here. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, childcare subsidies help men and women. They help families, But it's not right? seen as an, in an and, economic frame. That's and, the problem, isn't it? But, it? but it needs to be, and it needs yeah. to be seen as policies that create opportunity for people to arrange their lives in the way that's going to be best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really the two big things that I, that I see that we ought to change, one is um, this well-documented cliff that happens at, at three mm-hmm. days that where if people want to work a, a fourth day, where if, if a second earner in an upper-middle-class household wants to work a fourth day, they're going to pay 100% tax rate. Now, that second earner could be um, a guy. It could be the woman who's mm, the mm. primary earner, the male who's the secondary. And in most households, because of traditional gender norms, it's it tends to be the other way around. So, so I view this really as an issue, although I think it is an issue about women, it's also about an issue about opportunity for all people and all families. And um, so that's one big thing I think that we could deal with, and that's actually pretty easy to deal with. We just remove that cap on the total number of of, subs, of uh, childcare subsidy. Um, the second problem is that we know that childcare has the most benefit um, for children of, of uh, disadvantaged families, and at the moment we have this means test, so we treat childcare like it's a a work program instead of an education program. Um, mm. And I think it would be relatively easy to get rid of that means test and say everybody has the right to at least some minimum amount of child care per week, um, irrespective of how much money they make. And that wouldn't actually be very expensive. Um, well, I think know. the other bit in, in, in this that just to go back to where you started, Mark, which, you know, what's a real job is that I think there is a, an assumption that when people think about that, they think about it in class terms. So jobs are things like people digging holes in the road. Um, careers are things that politicians have mm. and lawyers have and university ed, you know, lecturers have, well, until now, of course. Um, <laughs> but so I think there is something here that's not it, – it's, it's not just about what constitutes a, a, a real job. 
um, in the sense of a, a kind of gendered conception, but also this idea that when when politicians have in their mind's eye this view of jobs, they're thinking very much about things that are um, traditional, um, probably not as prevalent as they once were, and certainly not anything that has anything to do with them. Uh, and I think that that is a real problem because it then does get you into the, you know, the, the policy choices that that Bob's suggesting just simply never being on the table because they're just not part of that of that worldview. And I think that that is a real problem, and it just demonstrates the importance of language and and what is conveyed by this idea of of jobs. Uh, and, and you know, we we kind of treat that very casually, but I think it is. Indicative of a of a real a class based separation of of um, you know what it is we expect of people um, depending on where they start in life. I, I think that relates as well to um, what we were just talking about with with childcare. It is still structured as a woman's policy issue. When of course you know we we know that that's just simply not the case. It's an issue for how families uh, organize and and coordinate their lives. And um, you know at a sort of deeper sort of philosophical level, it's a it's about a debate between you know private benefits versus public benefits and we very much structure it still around the private benefit to an individual potentially selfish mother who wants to have a career instead of mm. um, being able to actually just get ahead in 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 a country where you need to um, incomes and um, and I think so, you know, we have these kind of questions over here about how do we increase participation of women in the workforce and, and Australia has a long-run history of having um, relatively lower levels of um, participation at the full-time level compared to other countries where the government effectively sets up different sets of incentives around who will pay, whether it is through their un. Um, paid wages or through government subsidies um, for looking after children because there is a cost and it has to be borne somewhere. And how do we build opportunity? And I think the reality is, is that families these days either don't want to or can't afford to, or women simply want to take advantage of all that time and effort they spent over educating themselves to be able to continue to participate um, in the workplace. And fathers want to have the opportunity to ha work flexibly and not be discriminated against in the workplace. And I guess this is the question that the government can't really answer. You know, what is the good life? How is it going to help facilitate that, given the fact that people are dissatisfied and are looking to government, particularly in a country like Australia, to sort of help them on their way to achieving that for themselves. And that's the thing I think that worries me most about this budget is that it it is, you know, th this is not what th this party has been about in the past. It's been about, you know, um, driving down the, the, the deficit. Um, it's been about smaller government, all those sort of things. So in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, yes, on the face of it, the government has risen to these circumstances uh, and, and, and is using the public purse to uh, protect the economy, protect jobs and all that. But there's this, uh, there's this kind of underlying assumption that everything was fine before and mm. then was just mm. about getting back to where we were when in fact we have these sort of structural problems. And you could see it both in terms of the sectors, as, as I think a number of us have said today, both in terms of the sectors that have been left out of assistance up until now, conspicuously. Well, the ones that were late to getting any assistance, like the arts community, uh, which uh, th th that sector, which when the, finally when the government did start putting some money into it, even its press conference was about 
the tradies who will get work building sets and so forth in 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 theaters rather than um, you know some of the other people because those other people weren't in some somehow they weren't in real jobs um so yes it, it strikes me there's a whole lot of kind of um assumptions that you know that that are at, they're at play behind this budget which you could still construct as ideological positions uh, so it's not completely devoid of ideology. Um, before we go on to, I just want because I do want to go, Helen, to get your um, or all of your impressions of of Labor's foray into what I prefer to call early childhood education, and and um, and obviously there's you know aged care has been mentioned and, and and other things. But before we go to that, I just want to go back, Bob, to something you said earlier about the um, the, the hiring credit or you know what, what some people are calling. Um, JobKeeper Lite, the the program that runs for a year after JobKeeper runs out, and this is the um, subsidy of a hundred dollars a week for someone between thirty and thirty five, or two hundred if they're under thirty. You, you you express some concerns about that policy. Yeah, so I guess my my initial concern it's it's a kind of an odd policy coming from a liberal government that normally we think of as saying you know the market should sort of allocate labor and and people yeah. who are buying labor on the market should decide who they want to hire and people who are out there you know trying to get a job should decide how much they want to work. Um, so 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 that is kind of odd. The the International Labor Organization uh, wrote a large report on job subsidies of this type a couple of years ago and basically concluded that they almost never worked. Um, what they tend to do is just give money to companies who are going to hire someone anyway. And and then here we have arbitrary age cutoffs. So I'm not going to get it if I hire a 36-year-old. I am going to get it if I hire a 34-year-old. We create strange incentives. Maybe I'll let some older people go and I'll replace them with some younger people. And for anybody who's thinking about hiring now, you'd be crazy to hire. You want to wait until the job subsidy is, mm. is legislated. So you actually create a a kind of a kind of drop in labor demand uh, in the short run. So, so I, I, you know, my my objection is is not so much about the detail, but maybe just a more principled objection to these kind of job subsidies that they are incredibly hard to design well. And um, I would have said that five minutes after the budget was announced, and then in the following week, we saw everybody pointing out all the ways in which the design mm. probably was going to fail. Yeah, but at the same time, it's there's there's been a, a fairly wide consensus that you know when JobKeeper was originally ending uh, on the thirtieth of September, right, and th- and that was the cliff that we were all worried about coming up to then, and then they extended it, and we've got a sort of a scaled down version going to the end of March now. So there, there was, as I say, a fairly wide Consensus that some sort of bridging program back to mm. back to no assistance needed to be in place. This is a hybrid system in that sense, or it's a scaled down version. As I say, some people call it JobKeeper Light, but it does have those very weird. Yeah, we could have looked at other policies. I mean, we could have looked at something like uh, extending payroll tax. Uh, I mean, most states have have kind of given a payroll tax freeze at the moment. We could have extended that. Mm. I mean, things that reduce the cost for businesses of hiring people, we think, lead to more hiring. So um, I would have preferred policies like that. But obviously, they're much less um, – I, I think they're policies that are harder to announce because it doesn't look like the government is – governments always want to give the impression to people that they're kind of in control, mm. right? This gives the impression that government's in control even when government's not really in control. Yeah. And we have a genuine problem here, right? We have this pandemic and we have – 
you know, a huge drop in the number of things that people can spend their money on. Um, and so, you know, we can create as many, you know, different programs as we want. We can put as much money as we want in the economy. But at some point, people have to spend that money and they're going to – and a lot of people want to spend their money, but they can't. So mm. so there's this – it's not like the GFC, right? It's not just pump money out in the economy, boost people's confidence, and people go out and spend. Um, and so I think that actually makes it genuinely difficult for government what to do. And there's also this – huge assumption built in here that we're going to get a vaccine. And like you say, we're going to go back to normal. I don't know whether you want to talk any more about that. I mean, you know, in some ways, it's not that big of a gamble, because by by May, if we don't have a vaccine, we'll see a very different budget than we will if we don't have a vaccine. But it is an interesting gamble. Yeah, it is. Just quickly on the other aspect of it that we were talking about before, also the instant asset write-off for, uh, it's a two-year program. Uh, unlike the other one we we're just talking about, it was a one-year program. It's a two-year program. As an economist, are you concerned that one, virtually all the all the plant and equipment people buy will be imported, and two, that as some people say, a lot of this investment would have happened anyway and just gets brought forward. So you're just sort of spreading, spreading, you know, building forward to a to a shortfall later on in terms of investment. So I'm not so worried about the imported part of it. I think provided that the inputs that come in then are combined up with labor to create jobs and create output for Australia, it's okay. Even if you're buying it, a U? Yeah. Um, in terms of the bring forward, um, look, I, I think all these programs, what you're going to, you're always going to get some expenditure that just ends up being private consumption. Mm. So, so yeah. there's, there's obviously, you're going to create some additional investment that will be real investment. You're also going to create some additional expenditure that's actually just consumption that's hidden as investment. Um, R&D tax credits, all these kind of policies are very blunt instruments to do these things. So there's always going to be a lot of a, a lot of loss. And, and the question is how much extra marginal activity do you get? And most of that will be bring forward, I agree. But we need bring forward right now. Mm. I actually also think the provisions that are important are the provisions that allow companies to carry forward profits past from last losses. year. Um, past, past profits actually to write off against, against their losses this year. Um, cause it is kind of arbitrary that people can only smooth across 12 months in the tax system. And now we're going to say to people, you can smooth across three years. And, and right. the reason I think that's a good program is that it's going to help those companies that were making money last year. So we know they're viable companies. We know they can make money, but they're not making money this year because of the pandemic. They're going to be able to spread that profit across multiple tax years, hopefully come out the other end and, and still be functioning and be alive. Now, let's go to um, go back to this uh, early childhood education thing, Helen. Um, Labor's obviously seen the big hole, the big omission in the budget, the fact that it has not squared up to the to the pink recession, to the ongoing underutilisation of women, to the fact that there are so many women who are precariously in the workforce. And I think the numbers, which we were talking about earlier, actually back this up. In Between April and May of this year, 600,000 women fell out of work, like, you know, lost their jobs as this downturn happened. And most of those have come back on. But it just goes to show that they are in that very precarious strata of the workforce where that can happen. And of course, they're underpaid and everything else. Labor's obviously seen that they were expecting, if, if uh, from what I hear is correct, they were expecting the government to do something more to address this, but but it didn't really. And early childhood education and some sort of uh, proper arrangements around assistance there would have been a fairly significant um, policy lever to pull, as Maria put it before. So what, what, what's your assessment of what Labor's done? I mean, both politically and whether it actually is enough. I think Labor was, was in a really difficult position, um, because you, you know, there, there are 
so many things that that needed to be done that are in the budget. So you know, what could Labour do? And and I think to that end, um, both pointing to the hole that is childcare, um, and actually setting out the beginnings of a program to address that was absolutely the right thing to do. And and probably one of the only things they could do um, in a way that was was going to identify um, the limitations of of the of the budget without um, be, you know, coming in for all sorts of criticism for being unpatriotic and not supporting the government and all of these other mm. things that, you know, are, are now in play in the pandemic in a way that they've never been before. So, so I think to, to that end, it, it was absolutely a positive move and it was really important to hear, um, Albanese talk in the way that he did about the significance of, of childcare and early education. Um, I think it would be helpful if, there could now be um, some much more considered and expansive thinking, again, to connect to some of Bob's points about what is it that this gives us in addition to, very importantly, um, people being able to manage work and family. Um, what does this give us in terms of childhood education and outcomes yeah. for the future? And that's, I think, the thing that, you know, there, there's some reference to it, but in, in a way it is about, you know, is our idea of the good life something that that we can actually now start to put some um, some material to, you know. So is the good life making sure that kids between, you know, the ages of naught and four, which are the critical years, actually have the, the best kind of start in life, wherever they're from, whatever their circumstances. Um, and because we know that that's the point at which, um, you know, your life chances if they're ever going to be changed, are going to be changed. And so, you know, building on that and really thinking through, um, well, what are the other things we need to do in order to um, enable people to, to lead a good life? And that, you know, one of the things that, you know, economists were talking about that didn't get a mention is social housing. You know, what are the other bits of the good life that you need to, to put in place in order to make sure that um, – as far as you can, that people are able to take advantage of the advantage of the opportunities that, that are in place. But I think this is a this is a much longer game. But it, I think it's a really it's a really fertile area for the Labour Party mm. because it is ground that you know you would expect them to be on, um, and it's not ground they've they've been on um, anything like as much as they should. And you can argue about whether that's because it's a state responsibility or whatever it is. I don't really care about that. I think what's important is that people have a sense of um, an alternative future because I don't think we're going to go back to whatever we thought normal was. That's just not going to be possible. Mm. Um, and the other big gap, of course, in all of this is what we do about climate change. You know, that's, you know, any conception of us living a good life or, or our children living a good life is is always, always mediated by um, what we are not doing about climate change. Yeah, because you've got a, a government that is normally ill-disposed towards using public funds for direct investment in these sorts of sectors, but needing to find ways in which uh, to drive economic activity and recovery and and ideally to drive modernisation as well. You would have thought there was a, a moment for that. Just sticking for a moment on the on the uh, early childhood education thing, though, doing one of my regular radio spots on uh, on Friday last week, first question I got asked was about Labor's policy because, of course, it had come out on the Thursday night, the, the night previous. And it was about this question, Maria, of how is it fair that a family on, say, four or $500,000 a year gets an early childhood subsidy, you know, that whole sort of 
equity argument yep. sort of came in. Why, why should we be subsidising the the uh, child mining costs? Why do we subsidise primary schools? <laughs> That's what I seriously said. like. I mean, this sort of goes back to my point about the difference between a public and a and a private benefit, and I think that's actually one of the problems with how we discuss this policy issue. And um, at the moment, it's it's very much framed in this sort of weighing up of public and private benefits, and uh, it's it is mostly about. Um, uh, you know, like it's a woman's problem about how women can work and their participation rather than it being uh, a question about what it is we value in our society and where it is we want government to be shifting the incentive structure. So it doesn't mean that um, we could choose a childcare pathway that is, you know, one where you take your kid to a centre. Like it could be uh, models that are adopted in other parts of the world where effectively parents are incentivized and assisted to to stay at home for the first two years of their child's life, uh, both mothers and fathers, and then you know you move to a more sort of institutionalized childcare setting. And and we're not having and we're not having any um, nuance in that debate um, at the moment. And 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 whilst there are certainly private benefits to um, childcare, so too are there to primary school education, which is not controversial. I mean, obviously, if you are a middle class kid going to primary school, you're already well ahead of a kid for, with a lower socioeconomic background. Your life chances are better. The private benefit from public education will be greater. But we don't think this is controversial, do we? And I say I think that's the thing that was kind of interesting to me about what Labor was saying around this needed to be a much more sort of universal um, kind of way of viewing it. And I, I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting to me that the government has exited the field in the areas of sort of social capital um and uh, climate change, um, sort of creating like a vacuum mm. for for labour to um, occupy, um, which is a bit a bit of a risk on on the government's um, part, particularly when um, I think the the tone deafness on women in the budget, like that, is possible because of the media and interest group landscape that operates right now, like the feminization of the media, the fact that there are now a whole host of uh, female economists um, who have been pushing these issues for, for years now means that there is like a virtuous circle of people to be able to drive this debate forward. And it seems like the government has sort of been caught off the hop. And um, unlike, say, climate change, which is quite complicated and technical, this is much more emotive and has a real sense of obvious and immediate kind of fairness. It's and the ultimate retail issue in a way. Well, yeah, but I think what's kind of interesting is we're focusing a lot on childcare, but we're, we're not focusing a lot on the fact that women who can't have children now because they're 45 and over are the highest and fastest group on uh, the New Start job seeker payment or the fact that women who are 60, who are now grandmothers, are the fastest group of homeless people. Mm. Like, I mean, isn't it, aren't we ashamed that, you know, these 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 women who have who've taken care of us and foregone wages to look after us are, are being told to quietly go over there and not complain and we're doing yeah. nothing for them. So the OECD did a nice report about 12 years ago looking at family policies and 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 Basically, what it what it showed is that um, uh, financial support to families for having children, uh, good parental leave policies for both men and women, 
and um, supportive policies for care of of young children, that the countries that did all three of those things were the ones that really were doing well, both in in female participation, but also in child outcomes and infertility, right? And the countries that are doing poorly do quite poorly in infertility, actually, because people don't want to have children because it's so bloody hard. expensive, right? And and hard, Ruinous. right? Yeah. And so you need help, and and it's really hard, actually, in the data to disentangle kind of which of those three is important is important or like if you only did one of the three but I think it suggests that you want to be thinking hard about all three right and and Maria you you know one thing we don't talk much about Mr but maybe we just need to give some money to families of the of these kids in the 0 to 2 range and then let people do what they want mm-hmm. right which might be staying home it might be mm-hmm. sending their kids to care and and having some faith that parents have you know the ability to pick what's right for their children and 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 again creating more opportunity and more choice i mean that's a good role for government. A good role for government is always to generate, you know, more possibility for people. Yeah. Um, so, mm, interesting. Now we're going to end there, but just before we do, Bob, I'm going to. You, you just referenced the OECD and some pretty, uh, uh, you know, progressive thinking, at least in terms of this, the Australian debate about around these issues. Matthias Cormann's obviously uh, stepped forward. He wants that job as the Secretary General. That doesn't sound like the sort of policy or even the sort of culture that uh, is necessarily the first that would come to mind uh, when one thinks of Matthias Cormann. Um, can you give us a sense of what the OECD is as an organization? Yeah. I mean the OECD is really a member organization and it does uh, what its members ask it to do. Um, and I've asked them on multiple occasions, why don't you redo this family policy paper? Because it's about, I think it was 2009 or 2010. So it's a bit out of date. And they said, well, because none of the member organizations have asked us to do it again. So it, it is driven by contributions of the members. And then they do research on the things that members ask them to do research on. So maybe we just need to push them to do some more research on that. Well, I can't see Matthias Coleman being a strong driver of that. But then he would as you say, only be the Secretary General if he were to get the job and it would be up to the member states, I guess, to, to, to put some impetus behind that. But quite fascinating to see that development. Certainly a very oft-cited organisation, isn't it, when we talk about uh, you know Australia's performance. We often cite OECD countries, you know, similar trading economies and so forth. All right, look, thanks very much for what's been a really good and wide-ranging discussion today to Maria Teflaga. Helen Sullivan and Bob Brunig. It's been great having you here talking about the, the budget and uh, and other issues we can all talk about and think about Donald Trump perhaps next time. It's just far too crazy to even go there, notwithstanding your American accent, Bob. Um, so that's it for Democracy Sausage this week. Thanks again for joining us and we'll be back with a Democracy Sausage Extra later in the week. And uh, until then, bye. 